Welcome to Local Wool, a podcast for conscientious makers. I'm Anastasia Williams, and this is episode 13. podcast is Cody Nicholson Stratton of Foggy Bottoms Boys. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thanks for having me. All right. So um, just to kind of start off, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah. So as you said, my name is Cody Nicholson Stratton. I'm a seventh generation dairy farmer, first generation shepherd. Uh, I live in Ferndale, California, which is up on the far northern coastal part of the state. Uh, and we raise organic jerseys for cheese and butter, as well as some beef cattle. And then Foggy Bottoms Boys is sort of the niche aspect of our farm, and it focuses on uh, grass-fed protein and climate-beneficial fiber, so mostly through grass-fed meats and wool from our Rommeldale sheep and Angora rabbits. Oh, that's so cool. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And, and I know that your farm itself has a long-standing history. Um, so how, yeah. did, how did it get started and how has it kind of transitioned to what it is today? Oh, okay. yeah. So uh, this is a pretty traditional ag area, farming region. So our family actually began farming here in the 1860s um, on my paternal grandmother's side when they immigrated from Denmark. And they settled. We live in this river valley and there's an island at the mouth of the river. And so they moved from an island in Denmark and settled on this island in the river. And today we actually still farm that island and we grow alfalfa for our cattle and our sheep there. Um, And so that was seven generations ago. Then my paternal grandfather, his family started, would be five generations ago, began farming jerseys and they moved to our current dairy where my husband and I live with our son um, in the 1920s. So we're almost closing in on 100 years at our current farm. Wow. And Yeah. And so it's been Jersey cattle all along. And as each generation kind of came on, they added new enterprises and changed how we farmed to become more sustainable and kind of keep up. And as my dad added a beef herd. He and my mom started raising beef cattle because they really like beef and they really transitioned the farm to uh, farming from a grass eye view rather than a cow's eye view. So they farmed with high intensity, short duration strip grazing starting 25 years ago and really farmed from this idea of raising grass and animals are a way of harvesting it. And then I always loved sheep. Um, I was a 4-H'er and raised sheep. And Mm. when I went to college, we got rid of all the sheep. And after I came back six years ago, um, my husband, or at the time boyfriend, now husband, and I kind of had all this Angora rabbit fiber because we showed rabbits and we thought we'd get a few sheep. And that somehow morphed into a flock of sheep. And (laughs) what started as a, they were just going to be for kind of fiber and biologic weed control in the dairy now is like its own 200 acre enterprise 
off farm. So off wow. the main farm. Yeah. So each generation's just kind of added a little more and expanded. And now we find ourselves with pastured poultry and sheep and rabbits and grass fed beef and an organic Jersey dairy. <laughs> oh my gosh. That is, that's like a lot to do. <laughs> it, it's, it's a surprising amount to do sometimes. Oh my gosh. So, I mean, like, what does a, what does a typical day look like? I mean, how does it, how do you manage that time? Um, well, so my husband actually works off farm as well. Uh, so he works for our local county fair. He's our operations manager. So he's only here part-time, but luckily he's very good at kind of the administrative aspect of our farm and especially Foggy Bottoms boys and filling orders. And so I don't deal with much of that. Um, but we start milking at three o'clock each morning. Uh, and so that goes until about seven. And then there's various groups of cows that need to be fed and the barns have to be cleaned every day. And then we move into shepherding the flock of sheep. Um, you know, we have some sheep that we show. And so they are kept separate. So they have to be fed. And then the main flock is fed. Anything that's being grass finished is taken care of. Uh, and then, you know, depending on what's happening, you know, that could take until 11 o'clock in the morning. Uh, and then if it's summer, we might have irrigation to move. We could be making hay. And... Then it comes back around at three in the afternoon. We start milking again. <laughs> and then it's sort of feeding cows and sheep again. And so the whole day is just kind of the cycle of moving around, feeding. When we're in the grazing season, we're moving portable fences to strip graze the cattle. We're moving portable fences to keep the sheep rotating. Um, and then as we've we really had our rabbitry, at full capacity, there was a lot of grooming that had to happen. Um, so we were, you know, an hour a day or so was spent grooming rabbits. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's a lot. <laughs> oh my gosh! I mean, do you even like how much? This mm. is totally unreal. How much sleep do you get? So, not much, especially right now with an infant. Um, oh my gosh! So we the upside is this is a multi generational farm. Um, so my parents, my dad works here full time. And then I'm here full time and my grandfather is quote unquote retired, but he's pretty much around full time and comes, he really just likes working on the farm and likes being here. Uh, and then, you know, when my mom's off work, she's helping out when Thomas husband's off work, he's here helping out. Uh, so yeah, we probably, I mean, there's five to six hours of sleep each night. <laughs> so, oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. So is it just, is it just your family then that's, that's really working on it? Or do you guys have extra help? We have one full, our part-time employee that milks five days a week. Um, and so we, I milk the other two, which is really important for monitoring herd health in the cows. Um, mm -hmm. and just so I see everything and know what's happening. Uh, and then in the summer we hire kind of extra help, like, uh, high school kids usually to help us haul hay. So that's, it just takes many hands to bring all the hay in. So we need more than just us to get that done. Yeah, I completely believe you. <laughs> <laughs> so kind of like gearing into the sheep aspect of it. Um, and I yeah. know we'll probably talk about some of those other animals. It's, I mean, there's just so much that you guys do. I'm so fascinated. But so you guys have Rommeldales, which are like uh, they're a native 
to America, it sounds like. Like, I don't think that they they are are anywhere else. Um, And then they're also endangered. So what what drew you to this breed? Um, Well, to kind of, it was rather circuitous, actually. Uh, I, when we started going into sheep, we'd raised Angora rabbits. We had just bags of fiber. I'd been giving it away. We finally thought we should do something with it. We were, we bought some mohair. We bought in a couple um, blue-faced Lester fleeces. We loved what that did. We were given a pair of Merino ewes, and I had this grand idea that I was going to cross Merino and Rambouillets um, onto blue-faced Lesters and make our own cross. And then there's a local shepherd who has a commercial flock of sheep, and she bought this handful of Rommeldale CVMs, uh, it was like seven of them, six ewes and a ram, and they were too dopey, as she put it for her. They're just very, <laughs> they're very friendly and kind of fuddy-duddy, and they did not work in a commercial setting. And so she <laughs> informed us that we needed to come get them, and we were going to work them off. <laughs> and that was how we ended up with Rommeldales. <laughs> and that, we had them for the first year, and they were, we really liked them. And then the flock that they had come from was dispersing. Um, the shepherdess that owned the flock was going to retire. And so this Jill, the farmer that we'd gotten these sheep from, uh, kind of asked us if we wanted them. And we weren't quite sure that we wanted 30 more sheep at that point. <laughs> and then about a week later, she called and told us that we needed to take the trailer about seven hours away and pick up these sheep because she'd bought them and they were ours and now we had to have them. And so oh it was sort of one of these things where I really, I, if it had been up to me, I probably wouldn't have picked Rommeldales. And it was just one of those things that like the way it was supposed to work out worked out because we could not have picked a better breed of sheep for us. I mean, they're a fine wool, which is perfect for what we started out doing, was, which was blending with Angora rabbit fiber. They're incredibly hardy, which works very well for our system. We pasture lamb and they do wonderful lambing on pasture. They're great moms. Um, and they're really dual purpose despite being uh, a fine wool. And, and the sheep we got are just beautiful. And there's such a variety of fiber you know, colors in the fiber and variation and so tonal that you can do a lot of really creative things with the fleeces. Mm. And so we really just kind of magically stumbled into the perfect breed. So this grand plan of a Merino blue face Lester is completely gone. And now we <laughs> have a bunch of Rommeldales and we've been showing fleeces and showing sheep and selling wool and doing our own yarn and it just sort of happened. <laughs> wow. That that's so cool. So what what kind of got you into wanting to do the showing aspect of it? Is that the 4-H'er in you? Yeah. It, my dad always <laughs> jokes that this is like a my life is a 4-H project on steroids. I just <laughs> like, I've always loved showing and doing the being involved in that aspect of livestock and I actually judge dairy cattle as well and so I love showing sheep um, and you know sitting there and carving out uh, sheep which is you know they you kind of trim the fleece to make them look the best 
possible sheep they can be. And I find that to be the, the most relaxing thing. It's sort of like my version of flow. Like I can just sit there and trim a sheep for four hours and be completely content. <laughs> and so for me, it's just very like meditative and relaxing and I love doing it. Um, and that's then we end up taking like 20 head of sheep to the black sheep gathering in Oregon because I get carried away. <laughs> <It's>... <laughs> oh my gosh. So do you, do you actually, um, do you do any of your own like sharing of the rest of the flock or are you just kind of with the show? I just with the show sheep, I, okay. I can do, um, if we need to tag a sheep or two, or if maybe there's like one sheep that, that for some reason just for herd like flock health i need to shear a sheep i'll do that mm -hmm. but otherwise we have a wonderful shearer here um who he comes around and we'll shear we shear twice a year and so um not the same mm -hmm. sheep but they're on a 12 month shearing schedule but we do a fall and a spring shearing and so okay. uh he'll come and shear our sheep and he's wonderful and he does an excellent job there's very few second cuts in our clip so we are happy to have him come do it. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, well, well worth the price to pay for him to come do it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And the when you are trimming like a show sheep, now that's, if I remember, I did sharing school around this time last year, and I don't remember a whole lot, but I think I remember them saying like that when you're shearing for show, it's more like slick shearing, like you're getting really close down to the body. Is that right so that, um that's sort of right so a market lamb like which are what a lot of the 4-h kids show which is a lamb that's raised um for meat uh those are slick shorn the wool sheep are shown usually with about two two and a half inches of fleece um over the body and so you're actually kind of taking cards and you're pulling the fleece out and then you're using hand shears to trim it and so you shape it's almost like a poodle at a dog show so you're like kind of sh <laughs> you're kind of shaping them to this like ideal standard of what they're supposed to look like um but you do it in a way that really like complements their attributes and then hopefully kind of plays down some of their faults wow oh my gosh i, I this is great i love it <laughs> <laughs> I, I love doing it it's so much fun for me because it's just like i get to look at an animal and see like what is wonderful about them and what I might like to change a little bit and then kind of play with that through the wool and, oh. and the fiber is, and the fleece itself is 60% of the score. So like only 40% of it is about type. So if they, they still have to have a beautiful fleece wow. that the judge can evaluate. So, yeah. So it's kind of everything like breeding a wonderful animal that's beautiful and productive. And then also, making her look perfect when she goes in the ring so oh my goodness so you have to coat those sheep yes yeah, so those sheep okay. are coated um so we shear them in the fall and then they will be coated from shearing onward and so they're always coated that way there's no vm in their fleeces sure uh, yeah the rest of our flock just because we manage them in a more extensive operation um, throughout on pasture and there's a lot of trees and they like to go under the trees we mm -hmm. don't coat um we coated our main flock the first two years we had them and then very quickly discovered that we spent a lot of time mending coats oh. <laughs> so we no longer <laughs> we no longer coat the the use <laughs> and do you guys have um like a local mill that you work with 
to have your yarn produced? We do now. Um, so we have used a mill in Minnesota uh, the last few years. We were really uh, wanted to do every yarn with Angora rabbit in it. Um, and mm. so we had a very hard time finding mills that could process Angora rabbit or knew how to work with it. The first mill we sent it to, we ended up getting 20 pounds of like dreadlocks back because um, oh. it had been washed in hot water and agitated before they tried to process it and it just felted. And so then we gave it away to needlepoint felters. Um, and so we found this mill in Minnesota that does a really good job with Angora rabbit and we use them, but now there's a mill that's only about two hours south of us Oh, nice! Uh, that we're working with. And so this, we just, they did some roving for us for our dryer balls last year. We saw a lot of dryer balls and then we just took them more fleeces. Uh, they're doing roving again for dryer balls for us right now. And then a yarn run, uh, a couple different yarns of, either 100% Rommeldale and then a Rommeldale mohair. And then they're also putting about 70 pounds of fleece into throws. So they have a, they're able to weave now. And so they're going to um, weave throws for us out of our wow. fleeces. Yeah. So we've, we've been trying to kind of diversify our product line and our offerings. That's amazing. So yeah. I, I guess I kind of jumped a little bit ahead um because i didn't really even ask you about like the wool itself and i probably oh, yeah. should do that before we talk about the processing <laughs> but uh so what um i mean i know okay so we've got we look at we're looking at throws um dryer balls yarn roving yeah. oh my gosh so basically are there specific projects that people say they love to make with that type of wool or yarn yeah, so, you know, Rommeldale is a, it's really in that, like, low 20 micron range. So it's very good for next-to-skin use. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, we've definitely seen lots of slouchy beanies and scarves, of course, um, and, <laughs> and socks. It's not, they're not really, it's not a super durable uh, yarn, I wouldn't say, for socks. There's better breeds for it. But when it's mixed with Angora, it's just really warm and fuzzy and comfortable so I understand wanting to make socks out of it um, sure. but it's really you know I've we've seen some really amazing sweaters made out of it especially with the blends um, and then we do all uh, now we do all natural colored fiber uh, yarns we don't dye we have in the past but we just found that to really be um, it wasn't economical for us we really the profitability for us went down a lot if we mm. dyed the yarn and our preference is to really stick with natural, you know, the natural colors. Rommeldales just come in such a wide variety of colors that we can group our fleeces together and make some really unique yarns that way. Um, and so, yeah, we've seen, we've even seen a few blankets, but I think the vast majority ends up in kind of next to skin use. That's it. great. I mean, it seems like, you know, when people think of next to skin, you primarily think of Merino. So it's, yeah. <laughs> it's great to, to have other breeds that are kind of acknowledged for that as well. Yeah. And it's just, you know, it's one of those things too, that it's a, it is a very versatile fiber, so you can use it for a lot. I mean, we do everything from dryer balls to really soft yarns. Um, 
And for us, that really, we're really grade our fleeces based on their quality and where we want to see them. So anything that's not going to make the cut for, you know, a yarn for us ends up going into dryer balls. Um, mm. And so we really kind of break it out by quality and where we feel like it should go. Sure. But, that makes yeah. sense. <laughs> so in general, I mean, how, how much time on your farm would you say it takes to like I know and I know you've probably got different seasons too when you've got lambing and shearing and all that stuff but in general how much time is spent on sheep versus maybe some of your other animals oh sheep are actually for us pretty um they're a lower input which is why we really like them Mm. um the cows take a lot of time there's just a lot of chores related to them especially with milking but the sheep uh, you know, they probably, when we're not lambing and we're not doing, you know, it's just moving pastures, doing a flock check, it could be as little as an hour a day is dedicated to sheep. Um, and so, especially if, you know, all we have to do is go and open a gate and move them to a new pasture, you're just checking water. During lambing season, obviously, we lamb twice a year. Um, and so we have a kind of a fall lambing and then we do a spring late winter lambing and so lambing can really become time consuming Mm. but um otherwise they can be pretty minimal input which is wonderful yeah do you guys have to keep like a pretty close eye on them as they're pasture lambing are they pretty they're okay they're pretty self-sufficient we bring first-time moms in um and Mm. we tend to lamb them in a barn uh, just so, you know, there's more, they're more likely, it seems to have mishaps or, you know, not quite know what to do if they have twins and one gets up and runs off across the field before the other one's walking. And then you have a mess to sort out. Whereas, uh, <laughs> whereas you know, a you that's lambed three times, she's going to keep track of them and be fine with it. And there's not a problem. Um, and so we still check multiple times throughout the day during lambing Uh, we keep a pretty close eye on when everyone is getting close Uh, and then we we're really lucky to have a pretty awesome livestock guardian dog and so you know if a lamb is orphaned for some reason he's usually kind of fosters it until we get up there and sort it out and figure out either where it went and get you to take it back or bring it in and bottle raise it and he really keeps an eye on everything (laughs) Oh, wow. And what breed do you have? Uh, so he is an Akbosh. His name is Thorin. And then oh. we, yeah. And then we have a new Akbosh puppy named Bayorn. So I'm a bit of a J.R.R. Tolkien fan. So oh, I love it. Themed names. Oh, I love that so much. Um, so, okay. And those are, they are uh, Turkish sheepdogs. Is that right? Yeah, they are. Yeah. And they're big and white, kind of like a Pyrenees, but they're shorter haired. Um, they don't have the long coat. And so they're just a lower maintenance. There's not the grooming. You don't need to brush them and they don't pick up things in their hair, which was really a deciding factor for us. Oh yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that makes so much sense. Um, and does it, is the, are, are they pretty much kind of, do they stick with the sheep or do, do, your, do you use them with the cattle or? No, we just use them with the sheep. Uh, okay. We don't really have any predator issues with our cattle, uh, but the sheep, they're 
definitely can be predation. And so we use them just with the sheep. Okay. That makes sense. And I kind of also want to talk a little bit about rabbits. Um, yes. <laughs> so, cause you, you have satin angoras, which actually isn't, aren't they an endangered breed as well? They are. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so we've got a thing for endangered breeds. I love this. Yeah, and, and once again, I sort of just stumbled into Satin Angora. <laughs> so, really? Yeah, the, I was going and buying rabbits for a farm that I worked for, and they were American chinchillas, and this breeder that I went to had also raised Satin Angoras, and they're, I mean, Angora babies are the cutest things possible. Oh, and, yes, they are. And there was this litter of chocolate Satin Angora kits at, that were ready to be weaned and I fell in love with them and so Eva came home with me that trip <laughs> from there it wow. grew into a rabbit tree that can hold 70 angoras holy cow yeah we we're, we're down to seven right now because oh okay <laughs> um, uh, a bit we had 70 angoras at one time but we uh, a baby in your life changes thing priorities quite a lot mm-hmm. so <laughs> so yeah so we've been raising angoras for i think 10 years now wow that is a long time yeah and and once again it was one of those things that we i got into um for show and then figured we should probably find a practical use for them since we had bags of fiber that i was just giving away to hand spinners so yeah absolutely and i think angora i mean it's pretty coveted it's very coveted and the price per ounce is, you know, when we sell it, it's eight to $15 an ounce. So I can't imagine how many thousands of dollars of fiber I gave away over the years before we started actually oh using gosh. it. Well, I'm sure somebody but, treasured that for sure. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. <laughs> <laughs> I think That's I was amazing. well liked by mini spinners for quite a while. <laughs> so when you're grooming, do you use like this? I call it, I call it like the bunny leaf blower. Where you're, yeah. where you just kind of blow them out every day? Is that? Yeah. So we do blow them out. We've actually selected um, one of the great things about rabbits is their generational time is short. And so you can really make a change in your herd pretty quickly. And so we selected for um, fleeces or, you know, fleeces or coats that didn't mat. And so they required less grooming. Uh, so we generally groom once a week now and we just use a blower and they sit on a little lazy Susan and we just kind of slowly turn it and blow them out and they just sit there for it. And once, and then we, you know, kind of flip them over and brush out their belly and kind of around their tail and under their chin, and then they can go back into their little pen. So, so they must be told, is it in their nature to be, to like to be handled? Or is that something you guys have to work with from a young age? Um, some of them really have like, they're really fine with it from the beginning. I think it does, you know, they are handled a lot. And so I think a lot of it is just that they're worked with really early on. Um, and we play with them. It's, I mean, they're cute. So of course. Once, they're, <laughs> once they're out hopping around, everyone on the farm is in the rabbitry, you know, at least once a day playing with the baby bunnies so they're they're well handled for most of their you know we leave them alone for the first few weeks until they're you know up and moving and you know hopping out of their little nest box and kind of cruising around their pen but once they're once they're more sufficient then everyone's in there playing with them oh my gosh yeah i 
I understand that completely. My Angora, though, can't. I mean, I feel like I've had him from a baby, and he hates to be held. I mean, he'll jack kick me as hard as he can when I try to turn his nails. It's just the worst. Uh, yeah. I've, satin Angoras, we found, we've had pretty much all of the breeds. Um, we've really found like, that satins were, for us, have been the most docile of the breeds. They're just really easy to work with. Um, the French have, you know, really low maintenance coats, which is wonderful, but they can be kind of temperamental at times. And mm-hmm. we tried giants and they just had attitudes. They were, we had more of them that were kind of vicious and they would, you know, really try to attack you and which we have a lot of kids that come through the farm and that's just not something we could tolerate. And so the giants went to a giant breeder um, and English angoras are adorable. <laughs> they're little faces yeah. and they're so <laughs> cute, but we uh, we were really also raising rabbits for a while. We did meat rabbits as well. And so uh, English angoras are just too small. So we didn't uh, stick with English. So we had satins. Satins were kind of okay. the perfect dual purpose rabbit. Sure. And yeah. um, what what is kind of there? I don't know if I've ever seen a satin, truthfully. So, okay. So the French have the fluffy bodies and regular head. The English have like tufts on their ears and their face is totally covered. What does a satin look like? So they really look like a French that's shiny. Um, So that, yeah. So they're, the hair shaft is hollow in the fiber. So light can pass through it, which gives it this like beautiful sheen. Um, And so when it, because of that, though, their fleece always feels like there's less there than a French because it's just a finer hair shaft. And so there's always less weight to it when you shear it. Um, they might have the same number of hair follicles per inch on their body, but they're not going to, the weight won't be as high. It's going to be a lower yield fleece. But when you spin it into a yarn and you blend it with something, it kind of adds that sheen to it. That's really beautiful especially when you know you get that halo effect in a yarn with angora Mm. and then it's a shiny halo it's pretty incredible and if you can mix in like some kid mohair i mean it's just intense (laughs) so wow so what kinds of um percentages are you blending like together with different types of fibers so we've right now we're doing a couple runs of just pure rommeldale because sold this year really well and so we're trying to kind of keep up with what people want um but we generally do a 10 percent angora and then our favorite is a 10 percent angora 90 percent rommeldale um we've done higher angora angora gets kind of warm well it gets very hot um you mm. know angora is a very warm fiber and so as you increase your angora percentage it can become a lot warmer when the garment is complete uh, and, and Angora is expensive. So it makes the price point on a skein of yarn a lot higher. And we really want our fiber to be as accessible to everyone as possible. So we don't want to really push it up into that like 50% Angora range and then, you know, have a hundred dollar skein of yarn that, you know, someone that can afford to, you know, only someone who can afford to spend a hundred dollars on a skein of yarn can buy. We really want everyone to be able to use natural fibers so we're trying to kind of keep that percentage lower um and then we do 
some mohair. We don't raise Angora goats any longer. We tried them. We've discovered that our climate is really not conducive to Angora goats. It's just too wet. Um, there's a farm about 45 minutes north of us that is in this kind of little valley up a little, you know, about 20 miles in from the coast. And they have this really awesome microclimate that works great for Angora goats. And so we try to partner with them and get mm. mohair from them to blend if we're going to do a mohair run. Um, and so any mohair is now coming from their goats. And then they also need wool for structure and their mohair yarns. And so we might be able to, you know, do some trading with them. So we're really trying to collaborate more with everyone as we can. Um, I kind love of that. spread it around. And, yeah, it's great. And then we can, you know, we can really, if we're buying fiber, we can offer a much higher price than the farm would be able to get with a wool pool. And so we're all benefiting from it. Yeah, so. that's that's really neat. Yeah. Um, and I kind of, I think this all kind of goes together because you are, you guys are involved or part of a fiber shed, correct? Yes. We're part of the original fiber shed. So that's okay. the, yeah. Um, so we belong to the fiber shed that's down in Sonoma County. And so what is that, what does that entail for somebody who doesn't really know much about fiber sheds? Okay. Um, so the, the originally was started out of like kind of a, project as I understand it from Rebecca Burgess and she was going to wear clothes for a year uh, were made within like a hundred miles of the fiber was grown and processed and made within a hundred miles of her doorstep and so that's now grown into a like kind of a group of farmers that produce fiber that dye that grow um, natural dyes that make you know, garments, um, the mills, and then this has progressed into the climate beneficial uh, wool. And so for us now, um, you know, we really don't participate in a lot of like the marketing options as much with Fibershed. We've been able to kind of do our own social media marketing. Um, and so they do offer, you know, kind of help people market, but the climate beneficial is a way of really tracking how farms are sequestering carbon and kind of what farming practices are being used and really giving the consumer confidence in the fact that, you know, when you're buying a yarn or a blanket or a garment from a fiber shed farm, that it's a farm that's really farming in a way that's regenerative and that's helping to fight climate change. Uh, so yeah. cool. And yeah, that, that, that's going to lead me right into my next question, because I want to know about all the sustainability stuff that you guys are doing. Oh, OK. Um, yeah. So our farm, um, the dairy itself is certified organic. We went organic in the early 2000s, early to mid 2000s, um, which was really kind of when the market got very rough for dairy farms. A lot of dairies were going out of business um, and there was a really strong organic market. And for this region, the farming practices that farmers here practice, you know, for a hundred years now have basically met organic standards. So it just made sense to become a certified organic farm. And that has led into our farm has become uh, certified humane, verified GMO free. Um, we're also environmentally certified now. It's an environmentally friendly farm. 
And so like we maintain all these certifications, but what it means on the ground is that we really practice. Um, we farm, whether it's our cows or the sheep, we're maintain a philosophy that we're grass farmers and that the ruminants are a way of harvesting that grass. And so we'll fluctuate our flock size or herd size based on seasonality and what is going like what is going to happen with forage. So if we're in a drought, we'll decrease the size of our cow herd um, because there's just not going to be the forage available. So instead of trucking feed in, we'll just scale back and take advantage of what we have on farm. And then, you know, we might sell replacement heifers or sell some cows to another farm. Um, and then we do the same thing with the sheep. We rotationally graze our cattle and our sheep as well. And we do high intensity, short duration strip grazing. Um, we've done that for 20 years on our home dairy. And what is, what does that mean exactly? Um, so it means that the cows get access to a set portion of their pasture each day. So we have eight pastures on our dairy, but they're only getting a little section. So it's a we do a 12-hour rotation, so it's only as much forage as they can eat in 12 hours, but leave like the desired stubble height. So they're still leaving plant growth so that the plants can regrow, and they're leaving some residue behind that will become organic matter to feed the microbes in the soil, and that'll also help um, increase our organic matter in the soil, which increases our water holding capacity, so we need less irrigation. Um, and so we'll have to apply less water because our soils can hold more water. Mm. And, and then kind of looping into that, as we move to this, is that we have pastured laying hens. And so they go around and they'll go out in the fields that the cows have been in. And they'll, you know, chickens love to scratch and get into everything. And so they will get into the manure that the cows just deposit on the field and they spread it all out and they scratch and look for fly larvae which hopefully helps decrease our flies that would then come and bother our cattle and or our sheep that are on the home dairy and then that expedites the nitrogen cycle so your nitrogen is getting back into your soil quicker and so it's going back into your plant roots your plants are able to establish new plant growth and which, as you're trying to sequester carbon, you're really wanting to sequester it in the soil through um, plant or rooting material. And so you're helping get that nitrogen in there so it's able to go to work quicker so the plants can grow faster and create more root growth that is then keeping carbon in the soil. Um, and then kind of following with all of this is that we only, our only input for both our sheep and our cattle is that we buy grain um, just because you can't really produce grain here unfortunately or not well um, but and so the cows just get a little bit of grain in the milk barn and the show sheep get some grain but everyone else is on grass or winter hay and we grow most of our we grow some of our hay and our haylage here on farm and so when the cows aren't able to keep up with a field or the sheep aren't able to keep up with a the field then we hay that and store it in one of our barns for winter or we turn it into haylage which are like the big marshmallows um, for winter. And then we also have the island um, farm, which is has no irrigation because it's in an island. So it's sub-irrigated from the river. 
And so we can just grow alfalfa there without irrigating and we can do three cuttings a year. So we're able to grow all of our winter forage here. So instead of trucking it in, we're just growing it all here. And I guess on that, on top of that, we do some, um, you know, we leave some portions of our farm available for native pollinators and for uh, wildlife. So there's some corners of fields that we don't farm or we don't graze that are just kind of fenced off. And that way, you know, the wildlife can have access to that. Wow. Okay. Uh, Question. Yeah. (laughs) What did you go to school for? (laughs) So my degree is in rangeland ecology. So, okay. Okay. So this ties in, but I have to say like, I, I went to school and, you know, as the folly of youth, we all believe that, you know, our parents were just clueless. Um, And so I went to school and I spent four years and all this money on a degree. And then as I was going through and professors are teaching us about rotational grazing and strip grazing, I was like, well, my family's done this for 20 years. And there was just things where as I was learning, it's like, oh, they really actually had knew what they were doing. And just as a, as a teenager that knows everything, I didn't believe that they did. (laughs) So I, I can talk about it from a more academic side than maybe my dad can, but he definitely knows, I think just as much as I do. So. Wow. (laughs) Yeah. That's funny though. I, it, it's perfect example of, I think every child's growth. (laughs) So. (laughs) That is, that is, it's so admirable though, the, the stuff that you guys are doing, cause you're just, it's almost like you're just doing it all. And it, it's amazing that you guys have really the energy and the capacity to do it. Um, now you and I talked a little bit before we even did this interview about, um, the, what it means. Well, I guess that you have the dairy side of things as organic but really it's just kind of segregated to that. And I, I know I've heard that, you know, organic isn't for absolutely everything. And I kind of want to know, you know, what qualifies something as like truly organic when it comes to livestock and why would you choose that for maybe one set of animals and not another? Yeah. Oh, it's actually a super interesting topic. Um, so we, as far as being organic, we initially, when we started our yarn line, we were wholesaling it and through a yarn shop that had a really great online store. And the owner of the yarn shop was really interested in us doing organic yarn. And so we reached out to our certifier. And if you're um, organic, well, I should step back. Organic itself is a legal term. So you have to meet a set standard that's set up by the National Organic Program, which is part of the USDA. And then you have a third party certifier that certifies you and they go through your records. And so there's a transition period and you have to keep track of everything. So we have a daily log that we write down everything that happens on our farm, what field the cows were in, um, if anyone was sick how we treated them, if we used a prohibited substance, something like, um, and we use like antibiotics on them because antibiotics are actually required by the organic standard. They just can't be an organic animal after they're used, but for animal health, you're required to use it. And then they need to become a conventional cow. Um, and so like you have to have a way of tracking them and then show where they went that was not on your organic farm. Um, and so you like, we have, there's all these records that go with it. Plus you have to keep all your 
financial records. That way they can come and look through your receipts from the feed store and the grain store and, you know, see where your seed came from. And so it requires you to really have a great relationship with your certifier. So our certifier's name is Kathy and we, you know, talked to her a lot. And so I was able to, you know, I was kind of thought like, well, I could become organic. Like we do this with the cows. Our land is certified organic. The sheep are already on it. Um, this shouldn't be too difficult. And so when I contacted her and she really looked into it and we found that for the sheep, the first one was that, um, Ivamec at the time, it's no longer allowed, but at the time it was allowed for therapeutic treatment, but not for like a routine treatment of sheep. So you have to worm, you know, if you're going to worm routinely or do a broad spectrum worming on your whole flock, you can't do that as an organic farm. You can only do it once an animal looks like they're wormy and they need to be treated. And which for a region where it's very wet is difficult Mm -hmm. Um, not something you can't overcome but was difficult and then as we she kind of looked further I made the assumption that um, for fiber it would be a transition period like with a dairy cow where we manage them organically for a year and then the cow can become an organic milk cow and she can produce organic milk even though she wasn't born organic and so I assumed with fleeces that would be the same like I could just shear them manage them organically for a year, and then they would yield an organic fleece. And it turned out that the way the standards are written, or at least interpreted, is that they have to meet the meat animal standard, which means that they need to come from, be born to a ewe that was managed organically through her third trimester, and then their entire life has been organic. And so, yeah, so when you're looking at the Rommeldales, which are a rare breed, and there's less than 5,000 of them worldwide, the idea of transitioning our entire flock to organic would have meant that I would have had to start managing these ewes organically, take their lambs, keep all my ewe lambs, and then just get rid of all of these wonderful ewes that I have that are, you know, productive, and I'd either have to, I'd have to find some other farm for them to go to, and then basically start all over with this new group of sheep. And so that was obviously very prohibitive. And then as we continued down the production line, we found that there really aren't organic wool mills. I think there's one or two in the entire country. Mm. Um, And so it then became an issue of, okay, so I can produce an organic fleece, but I can't get it processed organically. And so just really, there was just every, every step along the way for an organic fiber product there was some sort of hang up or barriers and we really once we kind of thought about it it was like well we can manage these sheep in a humane healthy regenerative way and that is to us just as valuable as being able to put the certified organic label on it so of course yeah so it didn't make sense to go down that path but organically for cows make perfect sense and I always my interp like kind of my lay lay way of saying like what organic is is that it's the next best thing to knowing your farmer so if you can't Mm. know your farmer and know your product comes from organic at least assures you that you know here's a set of standards and if that's you know you believe in those standards then buy organic okay if that makes sense okay yes it does (laughs) and I actually I appreciate you clearing up the the issue with the antibiotics because um I think there has been some 
well, maybe misconception on my part, somebody explained to me, and it was sort of corrected, but I'm glad you verified it, but that, you know, you can't treat them with antibiotics. And so are they suffering? But if you have to treat them, but then they can no longer be an organic producer. Yeah. That's different. It's different. And that's um, one of the common criticisms of organic that I've seen, especially from a dairy standpoint, is that, you know, if you're not treating them because antibiotics are prohibited, but the actual federal standard specifically states that you must treat them. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, you can, you're supposed to try organic methods first, but, you know, to save their life, you must treat them. And so then they just can't be organic any longer. So, okay. Yeah. And I think that's, that's fair. I like that. Yeah. That, it makes total sense to me. <laughs> like my, yeah. my whole life revolves around keeping these guys healthy and happy. I, I want them to be as perfectly healthy as they can be. So. Of course. Of course. Um, so you guys have a 10 month old. Yes. The tiny farmer. He's a tiny <laughs> farmer. I love that. <laughs> so I want to know kind of how, how has life changed from, you know, pre tiny farmer and post tiny farmer? Um, so it was so easy pre-tiny farmer. <laughs> oh. <laughs> like, um, just looking back, I mean, not nearly as fun, not nearly as enjoyable. Um, but, you know, it lambing out 60 U's pre-tiny farmer was just, I mean, I, it was difficult. But now, like, looking back, it's like, oh, it's a cakewalk. Then having a newborn preemie baby that and you're trying to lamb 60 U's is a totally different experience um and so you know there were points where we're out in the barn and he's in the moby like the rap and we're trying to deal with U's and move them oh my and gosh. and you know you're like he's he's been involved in the farm all along but uh, you know it just really and and then grooming angoras we made the decision almost immediately that the angoras really had to be scaled back. Um, you know, when you're blowing them out, there's fiber and dander flying everywhere. And that's not, that's just not healthy for a baby's lungs. And mm-hmm. so we scaled our rabbitry back to the seven rabbits. We've, we have enough fiber that we can, we could probably make yarn for two years without shearing another rabbit right now. And so we just chose to like scale it back so we can maintain our satin angora line. But, it doesn't require the time and, you know, someone, one of us can watch him while the other one grooms right now. So he doesn't have to be in the rabbit barn. Um, but otherwise, I mean, it's also really fun because you, you know, he's now 10 months old. So he goes in the Osprey backpack and I can go and move views and, you know, he's helped dock and he's been at shearing in the backpack and my, our livestock guardian dog just adores him. So if I need to set him down, you know, set the backpack down and he'll, jump the fence and come sit by him and will I do whatever I need to do with use or move them around or treat somebody and you know and I imagine there's no safer place for him than with a 150 pound octopus <laughs> watching over him so I mean it's yeah it's just you know it, it's been great but definitely it does change everything and also I feel I feel much stronger because when you move irrigation pipes all summer with a you know, 20 pound baby on your back. <laughs> it was a great workout. <laughs> wow. That is really like, what a cool thing though, to like be there, be involved in the whole process from the time you're an infant. And I imagine as he grows up, he's just going to be 
loving it. I hope so. Our, I think our fear is that he'll out, grow up and be like, I don't like cows or sheep. Because <laughs> that would just be so hard. Because <laughs> there wouldn't be much option in this setting. But yeah, I mean, and he, he does like adore, you know, I, it's fun because he loves the chickens or, you know, the pastured hens. I think just because they're fast and they move all over, he's always <laughs> loved, like he just loves watching them all along. So and That's and the funny. lambs, you know, they scamper about, and so he just is fascinated by them. Oh my goodness! Well, I, you know, I have the the first gal that I interviewed, so I'm like episode one, who also has an akbash actually. Um, oh. She has uh, she has four kids, and I think out of the four of them, only one isn't really into the animals on the farm, but he loves to do all the farm, the other farm stuff. You know, the tractors, the crops, that, too. They... That would not hurt my feelings because that's my least favorite part of the farm <laughs> is the equipment. So <laughs> if someone else loved the equipment, it would be wonderful. Oh, yeah, exactly. So, I mean, I think that I think when you grow up with it and I mean, I we had sheep growing up. I mean, I didn't do I wasn't super in, incredibly involved, but I think that when it's just part of who you are growing up and I mean you've got to probably agree with that as well right it's just oh yeah your blood yeah I mean I I think there was you know I always loved the farm and I always assumed I'd be back here so I can't imagine I think it's just you you grow up with it so I would agree yeah yeah it's like it's being it's being part of something that's like it's just different because it's being you know part of your land it's like your space it's your home I yeah. don't know. There's just something about it. it. It's just, it's visceral in a way. It's part of who you are. It's part of everything that's about you, I think. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you just have so much more of a connection to it, especially when you've put in that kind of work, too. Yes. Yeah. There's definitely a buy-in to the land and the animals, you know, the flock of sheep, the herd of cows. Like, you're, you're vested in it. <laughs> yes. Exactly. Yes. That's how I would put it as well. Um. Well, what do you guys, what's, what's next for you guys? Um, so we are, we've been kind of expanding our fiber line. Um, we moved away from doing wholesale. We still do a little bit to want a couple um, shops that really cater to tourism. But otherwise, we've really focused on just marketing through our website and through social media. Uh, we're, you know, moving we're trying to focus more. We're still doing yarn, but we're also trying to do um, end-use products. So things that it doesn't require a skill set to use, like blankets and dryer balls. So anyone can enjoy Rommeldale fiber and can purchase something from our farm. And then this year, we've always sold our lambs into a grass-fed lamb program. And this year, we decided that we're really going to, um, and by grass-fed lamb program, I mean a farmer here that finishes lambs, the same farmer that got us into sheep, back into sheep uh she sells hers to a lot of the local grocery stores and so our lambs would go there but this year we decided that we're going to really expand that aspect of our business and we're going to market it through social media using our website and ship meats Um, we have some people that have already ordered locally but we're doing kind of whole and half lambs and then uh, 10 and 20 pound boxes and we're collaborating with a 
another farm um, that raises goats. So that way we can kind of help them market their goats this way as well. Uh, yeah. And so we're just kind of trying to grow our business and stay sustainable. And so kind of part of diversifying the offerings and really capturing every use possible. So that way we can, you know, hopefully the farm can move on to the eighth generation. Yeah. <laughs> How cool. I mean, that is just, I just love everything that you're doing. It's just, oh, it's just great. I really well, think it's cool. Anyway. Well, thank you. And, and I mean, as I told you, I, in one of our previous conversations before this, like I found your podcast because I listened to podcasts in the milk bar. I was like, this is the most amazing thing ever. <laughs> I enjoyed. <laughs> so it was so entertaining at three o'clock in the morning. I could milk and listen to people talk about their sheep. <laughs> yeah. Great. I just feel like everybody's got a different take on it. Everybody's got different methods, or even if somebody uses similar methods, there's different stories. Every breed is different. Every person's different. It's, oh yeah. It, it's so different and how everyone sells their product is so different. And it's just, I, I love it. There's no right or you know one right way to do it. Everyone does things a little differently and it works for them. And that's yes. just kind of the cool thing. Yeah. Exactly. And so I'm going to, in a second here, I'm going to ask you where people can find you online, but I'm also just going to put in a little plug for you and just tell everybody that following you guys on social media is great because you guys have such an amazing sense of humor about everything that you do. And <laughs> it just is, it's so entertaining on top of being educational. And I just, I highly recommend following you guys. Well, thank you. I mean, Farming rarely goes according to plan, so it's always worth, like, sharing kind of the humorous side of it, because if you didn't find humor in it every day, I think we would go crazy, so. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, I understand and we, that. And we definitely, you know, that's been kind of our thing, it's like, you know, we just want to make this fun and enjoyable for everyone, so that way they can enjoy what we do every day, hopefully. And learn a little bit along the way. Yeah, exactly. And it, it just draws, it draws you in. I mean, it's, it's hard not to be drawn in that way. Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, well, then that leads us into where can people find you? Yeah, so you can find us on Instagram at Foggy Bottoms Boys, Bottoms S, Boys S. And we're also on Facebook, also at Foggy Bottoms Boys. Um, our website is foggybottomsboys.com which is you have to remember the s's after bottoms and boys otherwise you end up <laughs> elsewhere and it might not be something you want to find <laughs> and uh then our and you can always send us an email which is info at foggybottomsboys.com right. we're always happy to field questions and connect with people oh that's perfect well cody thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today well, thank you for setting this up and for talking to me as well. I enjoyed it. You can find links to Cody and Tom's social media sites and website on the show notes today, as well as some additional information on fiber sheds in case you're interested in those. And you can find those notes at www.woolanddye, so that's W-O-O-L-A-N-D-D-Y-E, dot com slash podcast. Until next time.